You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. The one true living God, the one true living and holy God has come to be with his people within a fallen world of death. So far, every sermon in this series on Leviticus has repeated some expression of that main point. Last week we saw that spiritually speaking, we are all, all of us, are moving in either one of two directions. Either we're moving closer to God, to Eden, to life with God, or we are moving away from God, further out into exile, into a fallen world of death. Because that's what this world is. We've said that about this world every week. We've said that this world is a fallen world of death. But if you don't think it is, if you don't agree with that, you really just need to get out more, okay? Seriously. You know, we can look around and we see so much beauty in God's creation. The heavens indeed declare the glory of God and it's amazing, it really is amazing. But if you go anywhere people are, before long you will see brokenness. And usually the more people in one place, the more intense the brokenness, right? That's why some folks don't like cities. This makes me think of places like the slums of Dhaka, Bangladesh. Dhaka is one of the most densely populated cities in the world. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you try to imagine extreme poverty, but pretty much any image from Dhaka will do. You can just Google it later. In Dhaka, there are 12 million people on top of one another in this one city in horrible living conditions where disease and crime and abuse basically prevail. We see this in Dhaka and actually in countless places throughout the world, countless places around the world, even places within our own nation. In America, our nation, the problem of homelessness and drug addiction is worse than ever before. Back in 2018, 2018, the government said that officially we had on our hands an opioid epidemic. And every year since then, the number of deaths of people from drug overdose has only increased. More people are dying of drug overdose today in our country than at any point in our history. It's a fallen world of death all around us. So if we were to look, take an honest look at this world, whether it's evil that is done or good that is left undone, whether it's violence against one another. Like I saw this morning, the the car bomb that went off in Somalia, killing over a hundred people. 
or the, the crowd. You see, that's in, in Seoul, Korea. There was a stampede of a crowd, 150 people. Whatever it is, whether it's violence, accidental, intentional, whether it's disease, disease that we can do nothing to stop, whether it's hurt children or broken families, fluke injuries or mental illness, damaged relationships or irreparable bitterness, whether it's homicide, suicide, infanticide or genocide, whether it's iniquities or transgressions or sins, we live in a fallen world of death. Just look around. And that means that if you're here this morning, I want you to feel this, if you're here this morning, congratulations. It means that you have survived somehow. We are here because we've survived another day in this world. And we should give God thanks for that because none of us deserves to be here. That's something we need to know when we come here to the book of Leviticus. This world is not the way it's supposed to be and God could have just ended it. God could have justly condemned the entire world because we as human beings are not entitled to exist. We're not. And yet, here we are. (laughs) And here they are. In the book of Leviticus, the people of Israel, this people called by God to be his own people, a people that God has chosen to be with as part of his redemptive plan. The holy and living God has made a way to be near his people through the tabernacle and the priesthood and this newly established Levitical system that we're reading about. And that's what we've seen so far. How do we live in this world of death, but not be acclimated to it? How do we orient our lives in this world of death? How do we orient our lives that way toward God, moving toward Eden, moving closer to life with God? That's what chapters one to 15 have all been about how to go that way, how to orient that way. And today we come to the culmination of those 15 chapters in chapter 16. And chapter 16 is all about the day of atonement. And so for this sermon, we're just gonna, we're gonna hone in and focus on this day. And I want us to look at three questions all about the day of atonement. Number one, why did Israel need this day? Number two, what happened on this day? And then number three, where is this day pointing? Those are the three places that we're gonna go. But first, let's pray again and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit through your ancient words, do a fresh work of grace in our hearts. Show us anew your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Amen? All right, first question here is, is why did Israel need this day of atonement? And the answer is people of Israel, they needed the day of atonement because they needed atonement. The meaning of the word atonement is to cover over sin 
in order to reconcile two parties. And in the Bible, of course, that means reconciling a holy God and sinful man. And what's implied there is the incompatibility of the two. There's a gap. There's an estrangement between a holy and living God who is the creator and a sinful, rebellious people who are created. And atonement is what God does to take care of that gap. And Israel needed this atonement, they needed it. Humans need this atonement. Israel needed it not only because they were sinners who had been separated from life with God, but also because they were constantly threatened by this fallen world of death all around them. They were constantly being threatened by the fallen world of death pulling them further and further into exile. The, the threat was that this pool of death, this pool of the fallen world of death would just extend and widen the gap that was between them and God. And in fact, it did. The gap did widen, we see, in the Old Testament. See, although God had made a way. He, he had instructed the people of Israel how, how to orient their lives that way, away from death toward Eden. He instructed them how to do that. The pull of exile and death never lets up. It never lets up. There was a constant tug on Israel from exile toward exile. And, and it, we've been using the movements like this and I've been doing the hand motions. But let's change the metaphor for a minute, okay? So track with the change of metaphor here. Rather than think about exile, this fallen world of death and exile, rather than think about that as pulling us away from life with God, imagine instead that exile is a flooding ocean that's encroaching upon life with God. You get that? So there's a pool, but now we're gonna imagine a flooding ocean of this fallen world of death. A few weeks ago, I was uh, down in Eastern North Carolina, close to the area I'm from, and I was by the Cape Fear River. And the Cape Fear River system in, in North Carolina, it's the largest river system in the state. And this was called a tidal river which means it flows, it comes straight from the Atlantic Ocean. And because it's a tidal river, it means the, the river ebbs and flows according to the tide. And what that means is that when there's a hurricane, this river, the Cape Fear, is notorious for flooding because there's lots of rainfall more than normal and there's lots of winds and waves and those three things mixed together with high tide, it makes the Atlantic Ocean push up and overwhelm the river paths. And of course it floods. And when it floods, it, it does what floods do. It destroys things. It just trashes everything in the area. And what's crazy to me about this is you can go, you can go to these places in Eastern North Carolina, other places around the country, and you can see markers way high up on trees that say things like, this was the water line you know, during Hurricane Florence 2018. You can see those kinds of things. And you just imagine, you're standing there, you just imagine, whoa, the water got that high. And what's especially crazy to me when you see these, you know, you see these waterline markers way high up like that is that you know that the waterline didn't get there in an instant. 
but it got there gradually, right? The rain falls and the winds blow and the oceans rage and little by little, the water rises and rises and rises and it spills over the banks. Guess what? It keeps rising and it keeps rising. See, that's what this fallen world of death is like. You guys get the picture? That's what it is. It's like this flooding ocean. See, God had instituted for the people of Israel a daily system to confess their sins and to make atonement and to be purified through the priesthood. But then, question, what about all the sins that were missed, like maybe forgotten? You're talking about half a million people who were all responsible as individuals to keep up with all of their individual sins and to seek atonement for them, to seek purification for them. What if somebody forgot one? Could you imagine that happening? What if they just forgot? What if some slipped through? Or here's another thought, what about just the effects of sin? What about the damage that sin causes? The way the floodwaters trash everything around it. See, the sins themselves are one thing, but then there's the pollution that was caused by sin. All year long, the, the raging waters of exile and death were pushing up. They were pushing up. They were threatening. The water was rising. They were getting closer to the tabernacle, closer to life with God. And that, I think that helps our imaginations now. So follow the metaphor. We've talked about the tabernacle, right, is here, right? Tabernacle's here, the, the, uh, the, the, the camp of Israel's around it, and then there's the world of exile. We, we use this building as a way to think about it, this space. Imagine, imagine that all around this space, is a raging ocean, a fallen world of sin and death, and it's just coming, right? It's, it's getting closer, it's getting, that's, that's the idea. And what does God do about that? Well, one option, what he could do, is he could just bring judgment. I, he did that before in Genesis 6, in the flood. You know what the flood was in Genesis 6? It was God saying, Fine then, that's what he did. I'll just, I'll just start over and it just all came crashing down. He, he could do that, he promised he wouldn't, but he has that power, he has the authority to do that. He could just condemn the whole thing, start over again. But instead, what God does is he provides a way <laughs> makes a way to clear out all the sin and to clear out all the pollution. He makes a way to push the waters back. The day of atonement was basically the one day in Israel's calendar where everything was reset as clean and purified. The high priest and his family, the tabernacle itself, and the entire people of Israel, they all were cleansed. They were purified. 
The pollution inside the camp was put back into order. The day of atonement was the day when God pushed the floodwaters back. And Israel needed that. They needed the day of atonement. That's the first thing. Here's the second. What happened on this day? All right. So think hard here and the Lord will give you understanding. All right. Think. We got to think hard here. Okay. So bear with me. The summary of this day, the process, the details, all that is in chapter 16. I want us to look at this, but first I got to make a quick note just on the terminology. Okay. So uh, we've, exp- we've, ex- we- we've explained the tabernacle, how it was set up. The terminology we've used is we've said that the, the holy place was the first part of the tabernacle and the most holy place, that inner back second section of, of the tabernacle, we've called that the most holy place, right? Holy place, most holy place. Now, we've explained it that way because that's the simplest way to explain it. The Bible talks that way in Exodus 26, when we are given instructions for how to build the tabernacle, that, those words are used. The, those are the phrases that are used in Hebrews chapter nine, when the New Testament author is explaining how the tabernacle is set up. However, sometimes, sometimes different terms are used. Sometimes the first part of the tabernacle is called broadly the tent of meeting. Sometimes it's called the sanctuary. Sometimes the most holy place, or literally it's called the holy of holies. Sometimes that's called the inner sanctuary. Sometimes it's referred to as being inside the veil, or sometimes it's actually just called the holy place, okay? And that's, what, that's the word that's used here in 16. So just know, when we're reading here in chapter 16 and you see the phrase, the holy place, that's actually referring to the most holy place, okay? That's referring back to the intersection, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, okay? Just a little clarifier there, okay? Holy place is the most holy place because remember here in the story, that, that, that's the setting and occasion of this chapter. Chapter 16, remember, it, it calls back to chapter 10. It's the same story. In chapter 10, that's when the two priests, the sons of Aaron, died. They died in the sanctuary, the first part of the tabernacle, because we infer from chapter 16, they had attempted to enter into the most holy place. They were in the holy place. They attempted to go behind the veil into the most holy place, and God consumed them with fire. And so now in chapter 16, God, by his grace, is giving us details on how exactly someone is to enter into that most holy place. You just can't go in anytime you want, however you want. There's important instructions that we have to follow. So God gives us these details by grace, right? He didn't have to give us the details, but he doesn't want priests to keep dying. So he says, look, this is the way to do it. This is the way to enter that most holy place. And he explains here, the process of atonement. This is all grace, the explanations here. But before he gets into the process, he explains more about the place of atonement. So catch this. What is actually happening behind that veil in the Holy of Holies? What's happening there at the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Ark of the Covenant had a lid, it was a slab of gold that was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was between the two cherubim on both sides and their wings were meeting in the middle. It was a slab above that, the mercy seat. That mercy seat, that's the particular place where God said he would appear here on earth for his people. 
God says that in chapter 16, verse 2. Look at this, 16.2. He says, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And this cloud here is reminiscent of the pillar of cloud that went before Israel in the exodus from Egypt. And it reminds us of the smoke on top of Mount Sinai. This, this is the glory of God appearing in physical, visible space. Another word for an encounter like this is called a theophany. That's what it's called when God appears to humans through intense visual contact. That's what God's gonna do here in the Holy of Holies. Right above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, God is going to show up. And this is really important because get this, within the Bible storyline, after the Garden of Eden, this is the closest human approach to the presence of God there is. This is a big deal, what God's doing here. And I think we can use our imaginations. We can think over what's said here. We can imagine what it looked like. Okay, look at verse three. God said he would appear in a cloud in verse three. And then in verses 12 to 13, we read that the high priest was supposed to bring some incense into the Holy of Holies. And he put the incense in a fire, which creates smoke. Okay, so he's walking in this, in this space into this Holy of Holies, and there's a cloud above the mercy seat, and then there's smoke everywhere because of this incense. So we can imagine this space, this little room that he's in is full of smoke. It's like clouds. And the idea, the, the symbolism there is as if the high priest was entering into the heavenly realm. That's the idea. That's the symbolism, right? So the, the idea is this is a place on earth. It's on earth, but it is not of this earth. It is not at all of this earth. And, and, and that helps us make sense of the process. Now, we, if we understand the, that part, we can understand the process. Of course, a place like that, you can't treat just like any other place on the planet. Of all the places in the entire world, this was the place where humans would encounter God. And so he required the most stipulated holiness. The details for this are beginning in verse three. The high priest had to prepare to enter this space in verses three to five. The overview of the atonement ceremony are said in verses six to 10. Verse 11, we read about the details of this ceremony. And then at the end of this chapter, beginning in verse 29, we read a summary of this whole day as a statute for the people of Israel going forward. We read that the Day of Atonement took place once a year. It was on the 10th day of the seventh month, which was a Sabbath for, of Sabbath for Israel. It was the most solemn day of their year. Nobody could work on this day. Everyone fasted. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And when he did, nobody else could even be in the whole tent of meeting, the whole tabernacle, only him. <clears throat> there were all kinds of guidelines that the high priest had to follow. He had to take off his extravagant priestly vestments. He had to bathe his body. He had to put on simple linen garments. He had to find a bull and a ram for himself and his house. And then two goats and a ram for the people of Israel. And he had specific instructions about what to do with each of these and in what order to do them. And of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Okay. 
But I want us to focus on verses 15 to 22. Verses 15 to 22 are the center of chapter 16. And remember, chapter 16 is the center of Leviticus. And remember, Leviticus is the center of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Which means, put it together, what we're about to see is literally the center of the center of the center of the center, right? This is a big deal. I feel like we need a drum roll here or something like that. This is, we've been waiting for this on the edge of our seats. And what do we find here? Imagine the drum roll. What do we find? Two goats. A story about two goats. We read the overview of these goats in verses seven to 10. In verse eight, we see that of these two goats, one goat is sacrificed to Yahweh as a sin offering. And then the other goat is sent to Azazel. And we see that Hebrew word in verse eight and verse 10. And what, <clears throat> what in the world is that? What is Azazel? Well, just real quick, there's a lot of debate on what this word is. Most English translations translate that word as scapegoat because that's what the goat is doing. But the English Standard Version, which many of us read, it actually transliterates the word Azazel. Azazel is the actual Hebrew word. That's, that's a Hebrew word. And whatever the word means exactly, whether it's a place or a thing in the wilderness, the main idea is that it's in the wilderness. That's the main thing that we need to see. We see that clearly in verse 10. Azazel is in the wilderness, which means it's way outside the camp. It's in exile. That is where this goat was sent, way out there into this fallen world of death. So again, two goats, two goats. At the very center here, two goats. One goat sacrificed to Yahweh. The other goat sent away outside the camp into the wilderness. That's the overview in verses seven to 10. Now in verse 15, there's another layer of specificity, details here. This is the process. The high, high priest had entered behind the veil already in this process. He had brought the incense, which created the smoke. He then took the, the blood of the bull, which he sprinkled on the mercy seat to make atonement for himself and his house. It's verse 14. Verse 15 is when the high priest performs the sin offering for the people. He kills the one goat and he brings its blood inside the most holy place and he sprinkles it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And by doing this, the high priest is making atonement for the holy place and the whole tabernacle and is part of making atonement for the whole people of Israel. Then the high priest, he goes out into the courtyard. He walks out of the most holy place, holy place into the courtyard. He goes up to the bronze altar. And there he does a similar thing where he takes the, the blood of the goat mixed with the blood of the bull and he sprinkles it on the horns of the altar seven times to cleanse that. This was the way that God prescribed the atonement. This was the covering. This is how the gap will be closed between God and his people. This is how God is pushing back the waters. And the idea here, if we're tracking with it, is that purification comes from the inside out. See? He starts in that intersection, the Holy of Holies, and he purifies going out. 
of these things we cannot now speak in detail, but that's the point. Purification comes from the inside out as the Lord Jesus later taught us. The pollution of sin, the floodwaters of a fallen world of death that have been rising, this is pushing them back. The blood ritual of the one goat was about cleansing. But then remember there's the other goat, the second goat, the live goat. And this is the second part of this atoning work. Verse 21 says that Aaron, the high priest, this, these are the instructions. He's to, take, he's to take the live goat and lay both his hands on the head of the goat. You can imagine this. If some of you have ever been around goats, you can imagine this. He's putting both his hands on the head of the goat. And in verse 22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities. What? And then the goat is led outside the camp in exile and it's banished out into the wilderness. And the symbolism here is that all these sins have been removed. The blood of the one goat cleanses from the defilement of sin. The exile of the other goat symbolizes the removal of the sins themselves. In both cases, the goats are a substitute for the people, making atonement, bridging the gap, pushing back the floodwaters. That's what's happening. And this is absolutely central to the Pentateuch, to the message of the Pentateuch because it answers the question for us of how God can justly forgive sin. Sin, we need to remember, sin is not pretend stuff, it's real. Like sin is real and the effects of sin are real and God, he does not just overlook that. That's not what forgiveness does. Forgiveness doesn't mean ignoring sin. It means dealing with sin righteously. And so this is crucial to the very heart and character of God. Look at verse 21 again, 21. <clears throat> this is really important. Look at that phrase there. All the iniquities, see that? All the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions all their sins. Do you see that? Iniquities, transgressions, and sins. The only other place in the Pentateuch where these three words are used together is Exodus 34, when God proclaimed his name to Moses. Do you remember Exodus 34? It's when God, he, sh he showed his glory to Moses. Listen to Exodus 34, six. Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, listen, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is who God says he is in Exodus 34. 
Exodus 34 is God saying, this is my glory. This is it. This is who I am. He proclaims his glory here in that he forgives sin righteously. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin while not ignoring the guilty. But how, God, do you do that? How do you do that? Leviticus 16 shows us. He does it by transferring the iniquity and transgression and sin to a substitute. God does that. The goats are stand-ins. They're substitutes, both as a blood sacrifice for the guilt of our sin and also for the removal of sin. That's what happened on the Day of Atonement. That's what the Day of Atonement was about. Third question, where was that pointing, right? We read this, where do we go from here? What do we see from here? Well, the entire Levitical system required that the people of Israel have faith in Yahweh. The point of the high priest here wearing only those linen garments, the point of the people fasting of making it a day of Sabbath, it was, it was the people, including the high priest, surrendering themselves to God. They're humbling themselves, that's what it is. They're afflicting themselves, humbling themselves before God, showing their utter dependence upon God, showing their trust in God. So any kind of heartless, faithless repetition of these rituals, of these blood rituals, it won't work. God says this in the Psalms, we've seen this. I don't want your bulls if I don't have your heart, God says, right? It doesn't work if they don't believe. And that's why it didn't work. If we skip ahead in the Old Testament storyline, we see the tabernacle became the temple and Israel grew as a nation, a mighty nation in the ancient world. And the day of atonement continued to be observed, but the floodwaters also continued to rise until eventually because of the people's faithlessness, because of the people's sin and rebellion and idolatry, eventually the whole thing was underwater. And God in Ezekiel chapter 10, he removed his glory from the temple. He took his presence and left, he left. The world as we know it then, because of Israel's faithlessness, which proved the utter failure of the old covenant, the world was basically then flooded with the pollution of sin. It seemed as if, by the time we come to the end of the Old Testament, it seemed as if this this fallen world of death had prevailed. But God, We're reading the the story here. We get to the end of the Old Testament and it seems as though this fallen word of death has won. It's overcome everything except for the promises of God. Because God had promised Adam and Eve 
in Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. He had promised that in the fullness of time, he would send a savior into this world. God did that. He sent in the fullness of time, the Messiah, Jesus, his son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And do we really have any idea what this means? The New Testament makes this point clear. Jesus means, Jesus is the glory of God, the very presence of God that descended in the cloud above the mercy seat. Now that glory dwelled in Jesus, the person. God himself in all of his glory. God himself, the fullness of God became human like us. See, Jesus is the embodiment of the most holy place. And rather than Jesus push back the floodwaters, he actually stepped into the floodwaters. You see? He stepped into this fallen world of death and the purpose for him doing that was to make atonement. He came here to be the covering. Jesus came here to be the bridge of the gap. He came here, listen, to end the floodwaters, to bring an end to this fallen world of death, not, not for ethnic, physical Israel, but for everyone who believes in him. See, Jesus Christ is the day of atonement. And we can see his comprehensive fulfillment of this day in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews makes it plain. Jesus is both our high priest and he is our substitute. He's the two goats. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He, he, he was the blameless substitute who died for us. He shed his blood in our place to cleanse us. And as our scapegoat, he removed all of our sins. The New Testament writers say, you see this in the New Testament over and over again. They tell us that Jesus bore our sins. That's Leviticus 16 language. All of our iniquities, your iniquities, our sins, all of our transgressions were put on him. They were carried by him. They were removed by him. He died for us. And when he died for us, listen, he was banished into exile. Where? Into what? The grave. See, Jesus, he entered into death itself. That's how far he went into exile. He entered into death itself, but then what happened? What did he do? On the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And when he ascended into heaven, he entered into the presence of God, into that heavenly, most holy place. Jesus entered into God's presence there as our high priest. And when he did, he brought not the blood of bulls and goats, but he brought his own blood. What? Do you see Jesus? He is our high priest who makes atonement. He's the one who sprinkles the blood and it's his blood that he sprinkles. 
Church, do we have any idea how forgiven we are? Like, do we even, do we get how forgiven, our eternal redemption is so secure because of what Jesus has done. God, who could justly condemn us, the very voice that has the right to speak our condemnation has spoken our forgiveness, our full and complete eternal forgiveness. He has given us in Jesus Christ, our high priest and our sacrifice. What a savior, what a savior, right? Hallelujah. What a savior church that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. And it's that eternal redemption that brings us now to this table. Because at this table, this table, the Lord's table, it is the new covenant ritual, the new covenant blood ritual, where we remember what Jesus has done for us. We remember the blood that Jesus has shed for us. The, the bread here represents the body of Jesus. The cup represents his blood. It's blood that Jesus by him and for you was poured out, right? Jesus poured out for you his own blood. And that's what we remember at this table. So if you're here this morning, if you trust in Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if he is your hope, if you have received in Jesus God's forgiveness, take, eat, and drink. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.